Good morning. Will you turn with me in God's word to Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11 will be beginning in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to grant them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Thank you, Laura. Well, the reason I asked Laura to read our scripture today is because this is Laura's last Sunday with us. I know, I'm sad. And so we thought, she, we're gonna milk her for all she's worth. So we're gonna, so she had her play drums, had her read scripture. There's other things we have in store for it. No, I'm kidding. Um, but Laura, we love you and we are, thank God for you and we'll deeply miss you. And I know you love that I'm putting you on the spot at this moment as well. So. Well, we are continuing our study, obviously, in the book of Romans, and we're halfway through Romans chapter 11, if you remember, kind of this big, controversial, highly debated uh, chapter in the book of Romans. But if you remember last week, well, before I get to that, how, how many of you, if you're, if you're reading a, a book or, or watching a movie, you just, you like a good cliffhanger. You, you like to be left in suspense and kind of with all these questions and wondering what's going to happen next, and where's the story going, and you can't wait to, to, watch, to read the next book, or you can't wait to watch the, the next part in the, the movie or the series or, or whatever that might be. And so you, you, like, you like to be left in suspense. You like to you like a look good cliffhanger. Well, f- for most of us, if you were here last week, that, that's kind of where we left off during our study last week in, in Romans chapter 11 here. If you remember, we left last week in, in verses 7 through 10, and kind of we were left on kind of a, a cliffhanger, right? We, we left with God hardening and God rejecting and hardening the, the majority of Israel. And so like that's, that's where we left things. And so that, that was kind of like the end of the sermon. That was, that was the end of the passage. God chose some by his free sovereign choice to save a small remnant of believing Jews, and then the rest he hardened 
So he put a veil over them. He put blinders over their eyes and over their hearts so they couldn't see that Jesus was the Messiah and so they couldn't believe in the gospel. And so that's where we left things. So God hardened Israel. Hope you have a good day. See you next week. That's, that's where it ended. And so I don't know about you, but like I was, I was, I know where the story goes, but I was, I was kind of left in suspense. Like, but is, is, is that, is that it? I got all these questions going through my mind and I hope you did too. Like, so, so that's the end of the story. Just a small remnant of believing Jews. Everybody else is hardened. That, that's it. And so, like, all these questions, like, is that the end of the story? Is there any, is this, is there any way to to be unhardened? Is there any hope for Israel then? And even harder questions, like, why, why, God? Just a small remnant of believers? Everybody else hardened? Like, that didn't seem fair. That didn't seem just. What are you up to, God? What, what's, what's that all about, God? Well, this morning, what Paul's going to do is he's going to begin to answer a lot of these questions for us. That he's going to kind of begin to answer kind of this, this cliffhanger. This is kind of part two when it comes, came to the, the suspense and all these questions that we left with at the end of verses 7 through 10 of Romans chapter 11 last week. And Paul's going to begin to answer a lot of these questions for us. And he, as he answers these questions for us, in the answers that he gives, he's going to do a lot more than just satisfy our curiosity. He's going to do a lot more than just answer a lot of these theological questions that are important that we have, that we had after, after the end of the sermon and after the end of the passage from last week. But the reason he's going to do that is because he wants us to show the effect that his answers to these questions have on our lives. In other words, the answers that he's going to give to all these questions that we were left wondering about last week, he's going to show the, the massive implications that his answers to these questions have on our lives as Gentile believers today. In other words, it's easy for us to look back and think, oh, that, that's just a historical fact and a historical reality that, that happened way back then in Paul's day. He just hardened a whole bunch of Jews way back then. And that has no relevance then for our lives, particularly as believing Gentiles today. But instead, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to show us that there's we got a lot of lessons to learn from this. That, that there's a lot of lessons that Paul wants us to, to learn from God rejecting and hardening Israel way back in his day. He's going to show that, that, that the effect that God's hardening and rejection of Israel, it has, massive, it has a massive effect and massive implications and practical applications on our lives today, particularly as Gentile believers who have trusted in Jesus, which then begs the question, well, what exactly are those effects? What are those lessons? And what are the implications that we can learn from God's hardening and rejection of, of Israel? We're going to see four of those, four, four effects, four lessons that we learn from and, and can take away from God's hardening and rejection of Israel. And the, and the first effect is this. You can see it on your hand out there. It's that God's rejection and hardening of Israel should cause us to be astonished and remember that God works in unexpected ways to accomplish his sovereign plan and his sovereign purposes. And this is what we're going to see at the very beginning there in verse 11. Look there with me. Paul begins by asking this question there in verse 11. He says this, he says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? What Paul's referring to here in, in, verses, in verse 11 there is, is what he described last week in verses 7 through 
10 in reference to Israel. And so the they there in verse 11, it's a reference to the unbelieving Israelites who were hardened by God in verses 7 through 10 that we saw from last week. And so again, if you, if you remember, and I've already alluded to this, God, he, he's preserved a small remnant, a small remnant, a, a small remnant of, of believing Jews who've trusted in Jesus who are looking to Jesus as their Messiah. But the majority of Jews, though, God's rejected. He's hardened them because they've rejected Jesus. And so he's, he's hardened them. He's put a veil over their face, over their hearts, so they can't see, they can't trust, they can't see the gospel and trust in the gospel. And so then what Paul's doing here in verse 11 here, in this question that he's asking, he wants us, he's asking the question then, of, of whether or not Israel's stumbling has resulted in their, in their falling. In other words, do you see what that means? He's asking if the majority of Israel then, who stumbled over Jesus and who hasn't believed in Jesus, he wants to know if they've fallen permanently, completely. Like, like is God done with them? Has God rejected them forever? Have they been permanently excluded from God's kingdom and salvation forever? And so that's the question he's asking there in verse 11. In the rest of verse 11 then, Paul answers the question that he just asked. And look at his answer that he gives in the rest of verse 11. He says, by no means. In other words, certainly not. Absolutely not. In other words, no way. God has, has permanently rejected Israel. No way have they fallen permanently and completely. Instead, in, in the rest of verse 11, if you look there, we see that, that Israel's unbelief and God's rejection and hardening of Israel, it had a purpose. And look at what God's purpose was in rejecting and hardening Israel in the rest of verse 11. He says, rather, through their trespass, meaning through Israel's trespass, their, their unbelief, their rejection of Jesus and their hardening that God has brought about, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So then that, that's God's plan, right? This, this right here, that's God's purpose. This is the reason, going back to the cliffhanger, for why God rejected and hardened Israel. Because he had a plan in it. He had an overarching, bigger plan and purpose in it. That, it, that his plan wasn't for, for Israel's unbelief and rejection of Jesus to result in their permanent fall and for all of Israel then to just be excluded from salvation forever. Instead, Israel's unbelief and rejection of Jesus was part of God's overarching plan for how he was going to ultimately save Israel. That's the point that Paul's making there. And that sounds really weird, right? Like that's, that should sound weird. That, that should sound like really backwards and, and strange. But like this is God's wisdom. This is God's design of working in unexpected ways. He hardened and rejected Israel for their unbelief. And that was part of a bigger and greater plan for how he was going to ultimately save them. And I know that like, why didn't he just wham, bam, save them then? Like why go through all the hardening in order to ultimately save them later? Doesn't make much sense sense and that's kind of the point it's not supposed to make logical sense that we can all make sense of but this plan of, of how he was going to ultimately save Israel it involved if you notice there in verse 11 it involved a number of different steps it, it involves a number of different stages and we see those Paul outlines those for us in in verse the end of verse 11 there you see these on your handout as well the first step or stage in, in God's plan of of saving Israel was that was that God's hardening 
of Israel for their unbelief was going to lead to the salvation among the Gentiles. That's what Paul means there. Look at verse 11. When he says that through their trespass, meaning through Israel's unbelief, through Israel's hardening, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And where, where, where do we see that? We see that in the book of Acts, right? In the early church. In the early church, in the book of Acts, the gospel comes first to thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. They're the first ones to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to trust in him as their resurrected Lord. But if you remember there, not every Jew believed. Instead, many were what? Many were hardened. And therefore, since they were hardened, they became angry. They became hostile. They turned against these early believing Jews. They stoned them. They beat them. They imprisoned them. And they did everything they possibly could to get them to shut their mouths about this resurrected Lord, Jesus. And so then what did these Jewish believers then do as a result of the persecution that they were facing in Jerusalem? They fled. And where did they flee to? Where did they go? They went to the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews. And what did they do when they went to the Gentiles? They went to the Gentiles proclaiming this message of Jesus. And as a result of proclaiming this message of Jesus among the Gentiles, what happened? Many Gentiles were saved. Many churches were planted among the Gentiles. And you read that and you're like, oh, like God made lemonade out of lemons. No, God didn't make lemonade out of lemons. Like this was his plan. This was his sovereign purpose. He intentionally, sovereignly blinded Israel, hardened Israel so they couldn't see. And as a result of them not seeing, they would persecute the believing Jews. And as a result of persecuting the believing Jews, they would, go, they would flee Jerusalem, go to the Gentiles, and take the gospel to the Gentiles, and, and the Gentiles would be, would, be, would be saved. And you're like, well, what a plan. That's, not a, that's just the beginning of the plan, right? Like God's plan didn't stop there. Instead, God's hardening of Israel for their unbelief didn't just lead to the salvation of the Gentiles, but secondly, and you see this on your hand out there, the salvation of the Gentiles then led to the jealousy of the Jews. In other words, when unbelieving Jews saw and see what God is doing among the Gentiles and see how God is including the Gentiles into his kingdom, now the Gentiles are enjoying the blessings of salvation that were promised to them in the Old Testament, then the reality of that is going to provoke many unbelieving Jews to jealousy and envy that the Gentiles are now the people of God and enjoying the the kingdom that was promised to them. And as a result of Israel's jealousy of the Gentiles, you know what that's going to lead to? See it on your hand out there. It's going to lead to Israel's salvation. Paul, Paul doesn't explicitly state that, right? There in verse 11. But he does explicitly state this a few verses later, a couple of verses later, in verse 13. Look there with me. In verse 13, there Paul's talking about his ministry to the Gentiles as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he uses his ministry as an example of what Israel's jealousy is ultimately going to lead to. So look at verse 13. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And what's that going to lead to? And thus save some of them. That that right there is, is what Israel's jealousy leads to. That as they see Gentiles come to faith in Christ and join the promises and blessings that they were supposed to enjoy, then some unbelieving Jews are going to become jealous of that, envious of that, As a result, they're going to turn to Christ, believe in him, trust in Jesus by faith, and they're going to be saved. And as a result, and we're not even done yet, as a result of that then, as unbelieving Jews become jealous, as they turn to Christ for salvation, as they're ultimately ultimately saved, then do you know what that leads to? See it on your hand out there. Israel's salvation then results in their full inclusion and life from God. 
the death. What's that mean? Well, we skipped over it there in verse 12. Look there with me. Paul says, Now if their trespass, again, meaning Israel and their unbelief and and their hardening, means riches for the world, meaning the Gentiles, and if their failure, talking about Israel's there, means riches, meaning salvation, for the Gentiles, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? It's kind of hard to track with there and follow with there. But when Paul uses this, this language here, there at the end of verse 12, a full inclusion, he does, he's referring to Israel, their full inclusion. And he doesn't mean there, he's not saying that every Jew is going to be saved. Instead, when Paul here uses this language here, full inclusion, he later uses it a few verses later. We'll talk about this next week in verse 25 in reference to the fullness of the Gentiles. And in that context, in verse 25, that language of the fullness of the Gentiles, it's a reference to the full number of elect Gentiles that God has chosen to save throughout history. And in all likelihood, that's what Paul is referring to when it, when it comes to Israel here in verse 12, when he talks about their full inclusion. He's talking about the full number of elect Jews that God has cho- sovereignly chosen to save throughout history. And so then what in verse 12, just track, stay with here with me. What Paul's doing is he's making a lesser to greater than argument. And he's saying this, if Israel's unbelief, And if Israel's failure and hardening led to something as great and awesome as riches for the Gentiles, meaning if it led to salvation for the Gentiles, if that's what their hardening led to and their rejection of Jesus led to, salvation for the Gentiles, then can you even imagine what what Israel's full inclusion is going to mean then for the Gentiles? Like, can you imagine if if that's the reward, if that was the blessing that the Gentiles received for, for for Israel's unbelief and failure, then can you imagine the blessings that the Gentiles are gonna receive when the full number of elect Jews come to Christ and are saved throughout history? It's gonna mean something even greater and even bigger than the riches of salvation for the Gentiles that they received as a result of Israel's unbelief and failure. Which then begs the question, well, what's that? What's it going to be then? What's, what's greater than just the riches of salvation? Well, he tells us in verse 15. Look there with me. In verse 15, we see another one of these lesser to greater than arguments that explains what Israel's full inclusion is going to mean for the Gentiles and for the world. Verse 15. For if their rejection, talking about God's rejection of unbelieving Israel, if that means the reconciliation of the world, meaning the reconciliation of of, of believing Gentiles to God, if that's what Israel's, if God's rejection of unbelieving Israel means, then what will their acceptance mean? So again, follow that lesser to greater than argument there. If God's rejection of Israel means the reconciliation of the world, which is a big deal, then can you imagine what God's acceptance of Israel is going to mean for the world? It's going to even be bigger and greater than the world being reconciled to God. And again, you're like, what's bigger and greater than that? Look at the end of verse 15. Life from the dead. That's what's bigger than that. And you know what that's a reference to? It's a reference to the final resurrection at the end of the age. When Jesus returns and the dead bodies of all Christians, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, are raised back to life and we dwell with Jesus in the, in the house of Zion, right? We, we, 
We, we feast with him in the house of Zion. We, we dwell with Jesus in this new creation in glorified, raised, glorified bodies forever. Like, that's what Israel's full inclusion and acceptance is going to mean. That's what's going to happen when the full number of Jews throughout history are saved. It's going to mean that the end is here and that our bodies, life from the dead, our bodies are going to be resurrected. And so then, put all this together, right? We ended last week, cliffhanger, seven through, verses 7 through 10. And all we could see at that point was what? God hardening Israel. And because of that, we're left with all these questions. God, what are you doing? God, that doesn't seem fair. God, God, what are you up to? This seems a little extreme. What are you doing in this? I don't understand this. That doesn't seem right. But then we keep reading. And we get to verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 15. And we see God's plan. And we see God's purpose. And we see that God didn't just harden Israel simply for the sake of hardening Israel. Instead, we see that God had a bigger plan, a bigger purpose behind it all. And his bigger plan, his bigger purpose was that his plan wasn't ever just to save just a small remnant of believing Jews. Instead, God's plan all along was to save the world was to save Gentiles, was to save Jews, was to save a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. His plan all along was to save people like you and me who are outside of that small remnant of believing Jews. That was his plan. And so he worked in these mysterious sort of ways that don't make sense to us. And he hardens a group of people. And those people are persecuted and, and they flee. And salvation goes to the Gentiles. And salvation goes to the Gentiles, provokes Jews to jealousy. And provoking Jews to jealousy causes them to turn and trust in Jesus. And as the full number of elect come, then we're Jesus comes and we're raised from the dead. And it's all done. And you're like, who would have come up with that? Who would have planned that? Who would have thought, like, really? God. That's it. And this is huge. The whole point, this is where we're going with all this. This is where Paul's going with all this. Like, this can be a spoiler alert. But the point of all this is for us to see and to be amazed and astonished by God's sovereign wisdom. That's where he's going all the way through the end of chapter 11. It's just to be amazed and astonished by God's sovereign wisdom. And to see that God doesn't, he works in unexpected ways, surprising ways to accomplish his plans and purposes in ways that we would never expect to never imagine. And it's important to remember, the way he works, he's not always efficient, is he? He doesn't draw a straight line from point A to point B. Instead, it's a roller coaster ride with a lot of sharp turns and twists and everything to get from here to here. He's not just trying to get here as fast as he possibly can. And you see that throughout salvation history. And the purpose of all this is for just us to be amazed at God building his church and how he went about doing it. And I, I think some of y'all here this morning need to be reminded of this. Like just personally in your life right now, right? There are things going on in your life right now you, you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around. Doesn't make sense to you. It hurts. It's, it's painful. You're trying to figure out what God is doing, why he's doing it. You, you had not got a foggiest idea. All you know is that it hurts, it stinks, and you want out of it as soon as you possibly can. Got all these questions for God. Some are bitter against God. Some are angry against God. You just can't figure him out. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of all the frustration and the hurt and the pain and the, the uncertainty and confusion in the midst of all that, this passage here does remind us that God has a purpose behind every single little thing that he does. Even if we can't see it, even if we can't make, understand it, and even if we can't wrap our minds around it, he works in unexpected ways, surprising ways. But it's all according to his sovereign wisdom to accomplish his plan and his purpose.
So that's, that's the first effect that God's rejection and hardening of Israel should have on our lives. We spent the majority of our time there. We'll move faster through these next three. The second effect it should have on our lives is this, is that God's rejection and hardening of Israel should cause us to not be proud, but to be humble. So what we see next there in verse 16, look there with me, starting verse 16, what Paul's going to do, he's going to provide this analogy, and, and the purpose of this analogy is to, is to help explain what he just said in verses 11 through 15 about Israel's unbelief leading to the Gentile salvation. He's going to provide an analogy or an illustration to help unpack and explain that even a little bit more. And so then in verse 16, he says this. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So let's stop there for a minute. That can be a little confusing, right? Like analogies are nice, but you're like always, what's that a reference to? And what, what, what is that a reference to? And, and all of that. So let's unpack this analogy real quick and what Paul's referring to here. The olive tree that he's referencing here is a reference to the people of God. It's a reference to the people of God. In the Old Testament, it's all that Israel was referred to as an olive tree many times. But here it's, it's a reference to the people of God. The branches here that he's talking about that were broken off is specifically a reference to the unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, who were hardened by God, so that they're, 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 they're not part of the people of God. The, the wild olive shoot, then, is a reference to most of us here in this room, right? To, to Gentile believers. It's a reference, the wild olive shoot is a reference to believing Gentiles who, who've been grafted into the olive tree. Believing Gentiles who've been grafted into the people of God alongside of the, the believing Jewish remnant. So then Paul's whole point here is to show that the olive tree, that the people of God, no longer only consist of ethnic Israel and ethnic Jews like in the Old Testament. Instead, now that this olive tree, the, the people of God, it consists of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who have trusted in Jesus by faith. The reality of that, though, has a potential danger. And the potential danger is this. The potential danger is that Gentile believers now, who've been grafted into the olive tree, into God's people, might now become proud. It might now become arrogant. They might now become proud and, and arrogant that, huh, the majority of, of Jews have been cut off and broken off, and now we've been grafted in. So we're now superior to them. We're better than them. We're God's favorite people now. And look at us, Gentiles. And that's what Paul warns against there in verse 18. Look there with me. In verse 18, he warns us. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, Gentile believers who've been grafted in, don't be arrogant toward ethnic Jews. That, that's the main application. Don't feel superior to them better than them, since you've been grafted in and, and the majority of them have broken off. Don't, don't, don't look down on them, feel like you're superior now and God's favorite special people now, and that you're superior to, to them. In other words, what, what, he's, what he's warning against, right, is, is spiritual pride. What he's warning against here is this self-righteous arrogance. And yes, it's first and foremost directed toward our, our attitude toward ethnic Jews, like, so this is a clear warning against anti-Semitism, like, that's sinful, wrong, has no place in the life of a Christian. This is also a warning, the spiritual pride, self-righteous arrogance, not just of how we view ethnic Jews, but it's how we view anybody. So think about this right now, right? 
how this might manifest itself in your life right now. Spiritual pride, self-righteous arrogance. Like when you hear about someone else's sin, when someone confesses sin maybe in your, in your discipleship community or you hear about someone else's struggle in sin or falling into sin, like when you hear that, is your first instinct to be filled with pride? Does it make you feel better about yourself when you hear about the failure of others? Does it make you feel better about yourself that you're more spiritual, that you're better than somebody because of their sin? Or when you hear about somebody stumbling in their walk with Jesus in some way, like does it, does it stroke your ego? Or do you ever find yourself just being overly harsh and critical toward non-Christians? Oh, I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they would think that. I can't believe that. Like those are all forms of spiritual pride. All forms of spiritual arrogance that Paul's warning against here. And do you see just how crazy it is for for a Christian to be proud, self-righteous, arrogant toward anybody? Like as Christians, right? Y'all been listening to the last few messages like about election? We don't have anything to be proud of. Like we didn't do anything to get grafted into the tree. Nothing. There wasn't anything on our resume that God thought, yes, in the tree. We brought nothing to the table. We didn't contribute anything to being grafted into the tree. Instead, the only reason we were grafted in the tree is grace, God's grace, because he had this funky plan. This, 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 this leads to this. And somehow we were in the middle of that. Not because we're qualified to deserve to be, just according to God's grace. Like the only reason we see, the only reason our heart's not hardened, the only reason we don't have a veil over our eyes, and we see now that the gospel is, 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 is our treasure and we, we trust it and believe in it. It's not because we're smarter or more intelligent than anybody. It's because of God's grace. So then who we are as Christians, gives us no reason to be proud or arrogant or self-righteous toward anybody. Because everything that we are isn't the result of us. It's the result of grace. And so it cuts the whole idea of spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance completely from us. It's then leads to the third effect of God's rejection and and hardening of Israel, what it should have on our lives, and you see it on your hand out there, but it should cause us to fear that the same thing that happened to Israel doesn't happen to us. Oh, this is huge here. Look at verse 19. Paul says, then you, again, he's talking to Gentile Christians here, will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For, here's the reason you need to fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning the unbelieving Jews, neither will he spare you. Talking about Gentiles. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, meaning unbelieving Jews, but God's kindness to you, Believe in Gentiles, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Do you see here, like the seriousness of this warning that Paul's giving to Gentile believers? Like this is Paul addressing you and Paul addressing me, Gentile believers here. He's saying we need to fear. He's saying there's something we need to be afraid of as Christians. Like fear. That's something that we need, to, we need to fear. And what we need to fear is that God didn't cut us off from the tree. Like he cut Israel off from the tree. 
unbelieving Jews off from the tree. You need to fear that. That needs to be something you're afraid of. Which we'll get back to here in just a minute. But this begs the question, how do we ensure that doesn't happen? How do we ensure that we're not cut off from the tree like unbelieving Jews were cut off from the tree? Well, do you know what the answer is? It tells us at the very end of verse, or very middle of verse 20 there. The answer is that we continue to stand fast through faith. That's how we're not cut off from the tree. That we continue to believe. We continue to trust. We continue to place our faith in Jesus as our one and only hope for being reconciled to God and being declared righteous by him. That's how we ensure that we're not cut off from the tree. We continue in faith, faith in Jesus. And this right here is why unbelieving Jews were cut off. They were cut off, verse 20 again, because of their unbelief. They didn't believe. Going back to chapter 10, right? They heard the message. They heard the gospel. They heard that Jesus was Messiah, that he was the resurrected Lord. They heard it, but they didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they sought to be justified by their works. And as a result, they were cut off and not part of the people of God that he saved. That doesn't mean then, this is important, that a person can lose their salvation. That's definitely not what Paul is talking about here. Instead, what Paul's saying here is that a a mark, a characteristic of a true, genuine Christian is that they continue in their faith. They endure in their faith. Their faith stands, their faith last, which means this, if you don't endure in your faith until the end, meaning if you, if you prayed a prayer when you were seven, but you don't continue in that faith in believing and trusting in the gospel and in Christ for your salvation to the end of your life, that means you're, you weren't ever saved. It doesn't mean that you lost your salvation. It means you never had it. It means your faith was fake to begin with. It was a fraud. It looked good. It looked right. But the fact that you didn't continue and persevere in it means that it wasn't the real deal to begin with. And what Paul's saying to Gentile believers is that we need to fear that doesn't happen to us. We need to fear it. We need to fear that our faith doesn't fizzle out. We need to fear that, that we don't get 40 years into this and we just chunk it all. We need to fear that we don't get into this and we get roped into a sin and the pleasures of this world and we're like, I'd rather, rather go after that instead. And as a result, we're cut off. We're broken off. And here's the question, like this isn't talked about much the role of fear in the life of a Christian. But do you fear this? Like really, do you fear that one day you're not going to believe and trust in Jesus? Do you fear that? Do you fear, again, just moving along in, in your Christian life, you're young now, you're on fire now, but 30 years from now, you just, you just chuck it all. Do you fear that you could possibly buy into the lust and the pleasures of this world and just begin to go down that route and just leave Jesus behind. If you don't fear those things, you better. You should. I'm not saying you should walk around like just shaking, (laughs) scared out of your mind that these things are going to happen to you. But you better not ever think, that will never happen to me. I'm above that. I'm beyond that. I'm stronger than that. I hear about all these other statistics. That will never be me. I'm too strong. I'm too mature. My faith is too solid. That will never, ever happen to me. Paul's saying, you better fear that that doesn't ever happen to you. Because it very well might. 
it very well might. And do you see the connection he's making there? Between pride and fear. That, that's the connection here, right? You see it at the end of verse 20. He says, so then do not be proud, but fear. I mean, you don't be overconfident. Don't be presumptuous that you'll never fall. Don't look at Israel and think, oh, that's never going to happen to me. My faith is too strong. I'm too mature. I'm always going to follow Jesus, treasure Jesus. I'm always going to believe I'm above that. Instead, he's saying, that's pride, overconfidence, presumption. Instead, you need to have a healthy fear and knowing you're not above any of this, that you're vulnerable to falling, just like unbelieving Israel did. And so then, do you know what that healthy fear then leads to? When you feel vulnerable and susceptible in this way? Leads you to wake up in the morning and read your Bible. Leads you to wake up in the morning and pray. Leads you to be engaged in a discipleship community where you confess your sin and they know every little thing about you. And you know every little thing about them. And you come alongside one another, encouraging one another, speaking to each other's lives. Trying to help people to continue in their faith, stand firm and fast in their, in their faith. Causes you not to play around with sin, to turn from sin, to repent of sin, to not place yourself and put yourself in positions in which you know you're vulnerable and can be susceptible to sin. Why? Because you're afraid. You're genuinely afraid. Knowing that that one little sin could lead to another little sin, could lead to another little sin that could lead to another little sin, then you're roped into it, you don't believe, and you chunk it all. A healthy, genuine fear that we need to learn of when it comes to this example that we've seen in God's hardening and, of, and rejecting of unbelieving Israel. What sin leads to this, and we'll be, done with, we'll be done with this. Fourth effect, it should cause us to be hopeful and remember that God's judgment doesn't have to be the last word. Instead, anybody can be saved if they turn to Jesus and believe. This is what we see starting verse 23, and we'll end with these two verses here. Paul says this in verse 23, and even they, the they here again is, is a reference to unbelieving Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, for the Gentile believers, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, again, talking about unbelieving Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying there's still hope, right, for unbelieving Israel, meaning they haven't permanently and completely been rejected by God. Instead, there's hope. They, they can still be grafted in. They can still be included in the people of God, even though they've been broken off. They, they could still be saved if, though, if they believe. If they turn to Jesus by faith and believe. And that's true, yes, of ethnic unbelieving Israel right now. Salvation is available to them right now. Not by doing works of the law, not, not by doing this, 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 but by faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus as the Messiah who died on the cross for their sins, resurrected three days later. They place their faith and believe Him. They can be grafted in. This is also true for anyone here this morning who has stopped believing. Is that you? Have you stopped believing? Has your faith failed? Have you lost your faith in, in Jesus? Have you wandered from Jesus? Have you strayed from Jesus? Have you run from Jesus? Have you rebelled against Jesus? Like if, if that's you this morning, like there's still hope. You can be grafted in. 
You don't have to think, oh, I, I've squandered it. There's no hope for me anymore. I'm beyond lost. I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how much I've been hardened. You don't know how far I've strayed. What Paul's saying here is not only true of ethnic Israel, it's true for you too. You can be grafted in. Not by cleaning yourself up. Not by white-knuckling it and trying to do better. Not by making up for all the bad things you've, you've done. There's, there's some importance in all that. But the way that you're grafted in is to believe. It's to believe that your one and only hope for being grafted in to the people of God, to being received and accepted by God, is Jesus. That he died on the cross in your place, taking the full punishment you deserve for your sins. That the full fury of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of, instead of you. You deserved it, but Jesus received the full punishment, the full penalty in your place. And you turn from yourself and you trust and you believe. You believe that he and he alone is your only hope. And his substitutionary death on the cross is your only hope for being rescued from the death and the judgment that you deserve for your sins. Is that your hope this morning? Oh, I would, would plead with you, oh, if you have strayed, if you've wandered, to, to believe. And that's the effect that God's rejection and hardening of Israel should have on our lives. It's not just a historical event that has happened in the past and that is happening today. Instead, it's, a, it's an event that God has sovereignly caused to happen that should have an effect on us in these ways today. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the hope that it gives, and thank you for the reminders that it gives to us as we reflect upon your hardening and rejection of Israel and your inclusion of Gentiles, inclusion of us in, as your people and into the olive tree and to the hope and the promises of salvation. And pray that the reality of that, Lord, would have massive implications and effects in our lives today. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus we pray.